0: is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are doing another mini episode on a cognitive bias. Today's cognitive bias is called the Pygmalion effect. I really like this cognitive bias because it does have a lot of representation or I guess it's really related to pop culture in that the effect is named after a Greek myth and a play, uh, which eventually became the movie and play My Fair Lady. So, I think that this cognitive bias is particularly interesting for this show where I frequently talk about pop culture and media and how it relates to psychological concepts. So, why not spend a little bit of time talking about a psychological concept that's named after pop culture? Um, so in essence, what is the Pygmalion Effect? It, the brief definition of it is that it's essentially the phenomenon of high expectations leading to higher performance, and it's often found in environments like educational settings or, or workplace settings, and the original study was based on research done with elementary school students, and I will go into the original study um, in just a minute. but. Where does the name Pygmalion come from? Pygmalion comes from the Roman myth of the sculptor, also named Pygmalion, who creates a statue that represents his ideal womanhood, uh, and then proceeds to fall in love with the statue. Uh, That would be, there's our high standards leading to, or high expectations leading to a different outcome. Um, And eventually within the myth, the goddess Venus brings the statue to life so that Pygmalion can have a girlfriend. (laughs) who was a statue. And this myth eventually inspired the creation of a play by Bernard Shaw of the same name, um, which then was uh, adapted into the play and film My Fair Lady, which is probably the version that you may be more familiar with if you uh, have heard of this. And essentially the trope of Pygmalion and My Fair Lady the play is that a young lower class woman is taught to speak with an upper class accent with the assumption that then she will be accepted into the upper class. Kind of like fake it till you make it. <laughs> but in this case, the if we're talking about within the cognitive bias, the Pygmalion effect would be having higher expectations for this woman's kind of like class standing by having her speak with a different voice will raise her up then to act in that way Um, that's expected of her due to the the class coded uh, in her language. Now, I have never seen My Fair Lady or... Pygmalion, any of the adaptations, but I have seen an episode of The Nanny that pulls from the storyline. And if you go to the IMDb page for My Fair Lady Movie Connections, there is a massive list of all the shows and TV or movie adaptations that either are remakes of My Fair Lady or reference it. And so that's where I... Saw the nanny that I <laughs> remembered that I'd seen it, but if like if you're just interested because this is actually a, a trope that I think is is seen kind of replicated a lot in pop culture is this idea of like trying to teach someone who's like lower class or gross and trying to take them and like refine them and reform them, um, but you know typically in these references, especially if it's a more um, more like true adaptation, uh, we see that the like moral of the story is that you shouldn't have to change people, right? That like that it's not about class or refinement, but it is about like the core of a person, um, which is the you know plot of the episode of the nanny where she, uh, it's called My Fair Nanny, lol, and she's like. Fran, the nanny, is hosting a tea party for Maggie, who's the oldest child. She's hosting a tea party for their friends, and if you're not familiar with the show, the family that the Fran Dresser works for is like this upper-class family that the father is british and in broadway or he like writes for broadway or produces on broadway um and the nanny is like from long island she's wears like cheetah print clothes she's seen as kind of like crass and so in this episode she's trying to put on kind of like the accoutrement of the class of the family that she's working for um and no one seems to believe that she's capable of doing it but then at the end of the episode realize that like oh it doesn't matter what the package of someone is like it's about their personality and who they are in their heart right and that this family loves uh, Fran Drescher's character for who she is without putting you know without having to like dress her up basically. Um so that's my understanding of the uh the Mar- my fair lady trope. Another line that gets referenced a lot that is from the uh the movie or the play version is um the rains in Spain fall mainly on the plane and that's like one of the uh phrases that they are using in the in the f- film to teach her like a better accent basically like an upper class accent. So that that is referenced like everywhere the rain in spain falls mainly in the plains because that's supposed to help you like get that more fancy british accent versus like she has a cockney accent in the in the original play so she's a little more what do you how would you say it like that's considered like a lower class accent um all of that to say that's where the name pygmalion comes from for the pygmalion effect so from the Greek myth, the Roman myth, all the way to these like adaptations of this play based on this idea of like putting your expectations onto something to have it rise to those expectations, whether it's a statue, a young woman, uh, a child's tea party, <laughs> those are that's kind of. I, th- I think a good way to, to remember what the Pygmalion effect is. Um, so let's talk about the original study that that found this effect, and that's this is by researchers Robert Rosenthal and uh, Lenore Jacobson, and they did this study in 1963 in an elementary school in, somewhere in Northern California near San Francisco. Um, and interestingly enough, so Rosenthal was the psychologist developing the study, and Jacobson was the principal of the school who who was working with him. And he designed this study to see what are some of the variables that impact the development of IQ of elementary school aged children. So, again, keeping in mind that the first... Well, this research technically started with rats. Right? Rosenthal's original lab work was, was with rats to see if they could learn mazes quicker. And he had realized in doing this research that the rats who learned the mazes the quickest, had students who were training them, who were, like, graduate students who were training them, who had, they, like, unconsciously influenced the rat's behavior, so he wanted to look at, does this affect work in uh, humans, and, like, kind of, what are some other variables, and I believe in the original study, he was also looking at age of the child, and then, like, child what he called the child's minority status, so, like, if the child belonged to a disadvantaged group, like, being black or African American um, or being like a poor child within this classroom. So he, he was looking at quite a few things um, with Jacobson, but ultimately the crux of the study was they went into a classroom um, and administered IQ tests to all of the students and they then told teachers um, that there were some of the students in the classroom that were going to be um, bloomers so they were going to based on their test scores they were going to be like really good in school and they were going to do really well a- over the course of the year now the trick of the study was that the test he gave them did not predict that at all he he just gave them a general IQ test but he gave he had selected at random students within the classroom to label as these bloomers or spurters and then told the teacher oh, you know, these students are the ones who are going to perform well. There was no actual test that could predict that, and he had picked them at random. Then at the end of the year, they and they observed behavior in the classroom throughout the year, at the end of the year, he administered another IQ test to see whose IQ had improved over the year. And I believe these children were like first, second grade. like They were pretty young children, so... Something to keep in mind is that in that age group, children are already developing so quickly, especially their mind is developing so quickly. So it is pretty much expected that their IQ is going to increase over the year just because of the the stage they are in, in development and the we're now putting them in the school environment where they're being they're very actively like given educational chances so i think that just is, is something to keep in mind when we talk about these results but basically after the, the study completed rosenthal and jacobson found that the students who had been labeled as bloomers had been given more attention by the teachers they were seated closer to the front of the class like to the the blackboard or to where the teacher stands most of the day uh and they were like given more resources and attended to more than the children who were not labeled bloomers, uh, and I believe that people have re- that he attempted to replicate this where he even labeled some children as like opposite of bloomers, like they were gonna be not good students, and those students were put in the very back of the classroom. Um, they got less attention, less resources, and at the when you measure IQ, the children who had been given attention and resources did better. Whereas the children who were given less attention did worse when comparing their IQs overall. So uh, all this research is what inspired his work on the Pygmalion effect. I have seen in some places that people try to call it the Rosenthal effect, but it just doesn't seem to stick. Uh, It's mostly the Pygmalion effect, which I think is really interesting that he couldn't get something named after himself. It's named after a a myth uh, or a mythical uh, figure. Anyway. This was like this was the original conclusion was that, okay if you set up expectations for a student's behavior, then teachers will act in a way that that implicitly communicates those standards or those expectations, so then children will rise to meet those expectations. Because um, that that was also a thing about the study, was that the, the children did not know who was a bloomer or not. Only the teachers knew. So it wasn't like the children were walking around being like, I'm a bloomer, I'm going to be like so smart over the year." The children didn't know, it was only the teacher. Um, now I think and a critique of this study has been that, well, it wasn't necessarily the teacher's expectations that the child was rising to. It was that because the teacher had those expectations, they treated the child differently, a.k.a. giving them more uh, resources, giving them more attention. And so that addition of resources is what helps the child to do better in the long run. And lo and behold, what if we gave all children, (laughs) regardless of like labels or expectations of them, we gave them all the same resources, maybe they could all do same thing. And so this then starts to develop into what you may have heard been called the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, I think you're going to do good at work. I treat you like you're going to do good at work, which means I kind of invest in you or I um, overlook some of your mistakes or whatever. So that at the end of the day, it does look like you did better at work because of the way that I've treated you, right? So Pygmalion effect and and self-fulfilling prophecy are are very similar. Um, But Rosenthal originally was just trying to focus on like, well, is like the expectation is what makes you act better, right? Like the the expectation from the observer is what makes the employee or student act better. But I think it's really that the expectation from the observer is what changes the observer's behavior so that they're able or not able to, but they're more willing to invest certain resources (laughs) into students or workplaces. Um, And a lot of the research on Pygmalion Effect is done Like I said, in educational settings or also in workplaces and like kind of the, the idea that if managers have high expectations for their supervisees, um, then those supervisees will rise to meet that expectation and it becomes a cycle, right? It's like, oh, you rose to that expectation. So then I'm going to rise to, I'm going to raise my expectations with the implicit understanding that you'll rise to meet those expectations as well. Um, so that, yeah, that's the original study. Um, like I said, people have been replicating this study uh, over and over again. In fact, I found two studies within the last two years that looked at Pygmalion effect. Um, one looked at community college students in a program that, or it's an urban community college student, uh, community college where a program was developed to help them prepare for jobs. And job interviews by teaching them how to. This is literally Pygmalion effect, or like the movie, by teaching them how to speak and act in different ways when interviewing. Um, and the the article was interesting because the it, it it was a qualitative article where the author provided feedback from the students who participated in the class, and you got to see quotes from them um, where they kind of talked about their experience. And then they also included. Uh, responses about a discussion the students had about is this program just teaching students how to speak white? Um, because the majority of the students in the classroom were students of color, mostly black and Hispanic, um, and they are in participating in a program where they're being taught how to speak a different way, how to act a proper way. And if we extrapolate from like my fair lady, right like being told how to act or speak proper um and i and i thought it was interesting that the author included the students responses to this kind of criticism or feedback and they talked about how this idea of of learning to speak in a way that could get them positions based on a job interview was a helpful thing but there was also some like sadness or maybe frustration that Um, people expect them to speak a certain way because they come from certain communities or expects them to not be able to handle themselves in a workplace because they speak a different way, Um, but then also frustration with people who are trying to say like they shouldn't be allowed um, to speak that way, whether it came from their community or not, but push back against things like speaking white or speaking in a different manner, um, the students kind of express this frustration of, well, why shouldn't we be allowed to speak this way? If this is the the way to speak to get jobs, we want to get good jobs. Why shouldn't we, um, you know, learn this? Um, and the author kind of concludes with talking about walking this line of helping students to kind of meet the challenges of, uh, you know, making it in a, you know, fortunately, a usually corporate setting or making it in a more professional setting um, while also hanging on to their own sense of identity and their sense of culture and helping them to navigate like what are they willing to push aside what are they willing to um, highlight you know kind of helping them to craft their their adult identity which this was a, a study done with more traditionally aged college students so like in their late teens early 20s Which is a period of time when people are typically developing their identities. So, of course, if you're working with this population, it's a good idea to help them manage their identities because that's going to be a big issue for them. Um, But additionally, also understanding this like Pygmalion effect um, that 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 exists, right? That like there's this um, expectation, and when you put this when someone puts an expectation on you, you you may rise to it, or they may give you they may give you different resources or attention if you rise to their expectations. Um, And the author here mentions that at the end of the play Pygmalion, the main character, Eliza Doolittle, kind of realizes that um, it's a bit of a a bit of a pros and cons situation, right? Where you, like, in, in the play, she takes on the new accent, but then is no is not accepted in the upper class nor in the lower classes where she originated, um, and so helping students to kind of manage a feeling of, like, there's, there's not a world that you belong to. Um, and I know that's not necessarily, like, a classic Pygmalion effect, but I thought that this was an interesting study, um, and if you've ever heard this kind of conversation about like acting or speaking white um it is a really good read to kind of read through the students reactions to that and how they process it uh, i thought that it was they were it was really well done and they were able to kind of highlight a lot of the intricacies uh, of, of this like debate or just i don't think it's a debate but like <laughs> this discussion and topic so uh, as always the article is linked in um the Show notes and the author is um, Socus. That's Socus's article, Pygmalion in the Hood. Um, Another article I looked at that that was also fairly recent was looking at adult education. So um, adults who are coming back for continue like furthering their education. So they are would be older than typical like college age students, Um, and they were looking at the use of Pygmalion effect in helping to motivate these students as the the article kind of points out that sometimes adult students have different challenges in learning and adapting to certain environments. Um, so they looked at this this role of, of the Pygmalion effect in that. Um, and they noted that the the research they did kind of highlights the need for educators to understand what exposure to factors that inhibit intrinsic motivation do. So what that means is understanding what are kind of like external factors or things that are going on in this person's environment or life or even, even um, internal factors like things like self-esteem, the way they view themselves, the way they feel they may experience learned helplessness. All of these factors can, can inhibit or prevent intrinsic motivation, which is the ability to internally motivate yourself to do something. So extrinsic motivation is outside. That's usually things like getting paid to go to work. (laughs) Those are outside factors that motivate you to keep coming back to your job because you are being given a sum of money for each day. Whereas an intrinsic motivation would be you get up to go to your job every day because it makes you feel um, maybe a certain sense of reward or it makes you feel like you are contributing or... Um, You're helping people by going to work. So that sense of like pride or reward you get internally would be intrinsic motivation. And so this article highlights that things like the Pygmalion effect um, could be one of these external factors that limit um, intrinsic motivation. If the Pygmalion effect if we're talking about the negative side, right? So that low expectation for the student, which translates into less resources and less attention, right? So if we're talking about kind of like the the negative side of the Pygmalion effect, this could have an income or could have an impact on uh, adult students intrinsic motivation to, to learn and, and like kind of participate um, in their education. Um, and they, they noted in this article I thought this quote was very interesting. They say a large number of people are able to recognize their limitations but not their possibilities for success and claim not to have a positive self concept and show low levels of, of assertiveness. On the other hand, they claim not to value themselves enough, which shows a diminished self-esteem, and reveal in their answers how some social skills corresponding to participation and personal empowerment are dysfunctional. I know it's a long quote, but basically they're saying that people are really good at noticing things they don't do well, right? So being able to say, like, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at fitting in, I'm not good at making friends, people are really, they're saying a majority, like a, a not even a majority, but a portion of people are able to recognize their own limitations, but they have difficulty um, acknowledging possibilities for success. So the areas of places where you are good at or places where you're excited to improve, Um, and particularly for adult students who are returning to education who may already kind of have things stacked against them, like feeling like they... Um, don't fit in because of their difference in ages, maybe things like having to work full-time while attending school, uh, having child, having to do childcare or caretaking of other dependent adults in their life um, while they're going to school. Those things are kind of already stacked against them, and so it may be difficult that uh, for these students to engage in thinking about their own possibilities. And this kind of contributes to low valuation of the self, which leads to low self-esteem, um, and may impact, this study was looking at, like, social skills of the, the adult students, right? So, like, how do they fit in with other students? How are they fitting in with the professors? How are they able to manage their environment, their social environment? Um, and it may have impact on that, right? So, your, your like internal sense, your felt sense of how you're doing at school impacts how you interact with people around you, which also impacts your intrinsic motivation, right? So uh, if I don't feel good about myself, I'm not going to feel motivated to like get up and get going and work on my assignments or attend class. Um, and so in this case, applying the Pygmalion Effect, if teachers or educators are able to have high expectations of returning students or adult students um, to help kind of cut through this predisposure to maybe poor self-esteem or poor self-concept, the Pygmalion Effect could kind of, you know, hack it, right? And by investing more in these students because you have high expectations for them, um, then providing them with an external reminder of like, they can do this, right? They There are possibilities here. So yeah, those are uh, my two more recent article examples. A lot of this research is done in more like corporate settings and a lot of it is done in education. If you dive into the research on this effect, you will see a lot of people saying that the Pygmalion effect is probably not real. Um, and there, were, uh, there have been some difficulties with replicating Rosenthal's study. Um, and again, keeping in mind that children develop very quickly in very short periods of time. So some of the effects he found of increasing IQ could be more related to just like natural development. Um, and this study has been very difficult to replicate with uh, older participants. So this his original study was done with elementary age children. It's been harder to replicate with older people, um, older students, even like middle school or high school. Um, so Just something to keep in mind and that, you know, there's a lot that influences like education. There's a lot of different moving pieces going on in the classroom and, you know, individual differences, setting differences. Like there's just so much like the Pygmalion effect alone is not going to explain differences in learning. Um, But I think it is an interesting cognitive bias to think about. And I think that it does kind of play a role in our lives because I think we do Tend to treat people differently based on our expectations of them, and I can say that working in a correctional setting, <laughs> I see that uh, firsthand. Right, of like the expectations you have for somebody and and what their behavior is going to be, can you know have some impact on, and not only just like what the, ba- the how the other person behaves, but how you interpret it. So if you have very low expectations of someone, you're not going to be quite so forgiving of certain behaviors or acting out or expressing oneself in a different way Um, versus if you have high expectations, like I said, you may be more likely to kind of gloss over mistakes or, um, you know, like account for certain behaviors and, and excuse them in a way that you wouldn't for other people. So I think that's kind of like the real world takeaway is just being able to check in with yourself and say like, okay. Is the reaction I'm having to this person fair, or is it based on these expectations I had for them that maybe wasn't explicitly communicated? Because, and I, I don't know if I've been ex- clear about this, I haven't been explicit. <laughs> um, but the Pygmalion effect is about this implicit expectation, right? So it wasn't that the teacher told the student, "You're a, an academic bloomer; you're going to do really well." It was just implicit in the way that the teachers treated these children. So. Anytime we're talking about Pygmalion effect, we're talking about implicit and like, you know, just, just to reiterate, I think it is important to be able to check in with yourself. Maybe if there's someone in your life that you have difficulty with, or there's somebody, um, there's a situation maybe at work or school, right? Because this is where we see the Pygmalion effect come into play. Um, maybe there's a situation where you keep finding yourself bumping up against difficult situations or difficult people, um. And I think one of the ways to help reframe is like, what are my expectations of this person and how am I contributing to them being able to meet or not meet that expectation? Um, And if you realize that, well, my expectation for this person is actually quite low... Uh, you know, why? Why is your expectation of them low? Is it have to do with ways they've treated you? Does it have to do with your evaluation of their abilities? And does it matter, right? Can you maybe adjust your expectations? Or as uh, I like to say in the therapy room, manage your expectations about somebody because then you won't be disappointed, right? If you can understand your motivations for them and under- or understand your expectations for them, and then when they don't meet them, you're not shocked because you were aware of what your expectations were and what this person's like, ability to meet your expectations were um, but you know again this is just a podcast for entertainment and opinions so that's just my opinion and how I think we can take something useful um, out of this cognitive bias um, but yeah I just wanted to say Thank you for listening um, I took a little did a little mini episode this week so I we could have a little break because uh, the last series I worked on was was a lot of work, a lot of research um, but I'm going to be kicking off um, the next episode will be a full episode on a feature film that I am excited to review but I will keep it a little bit of a secret till the episode drops um, but as always thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode bye bye see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.